We're, in, we're back in Acts again. If you have just uh, visited the last couple of weeks and you're wondering why do they do entire books of the Bible all in one sermon, that's weird. Uh, that's not normally how we operate around here. Normally we will walk through an entire book verse by verse, but right now we are actually doing that, just not in the ones that we were teaching over the last couple of weeks. We're walking through uh, the book of Acts, which is the, the narrative of the beginning, the birth and, and growth of the early church. And as we're doing that, when we touch on a, a portion where, like uh, uh, three weeks ago, we, we hit the point where Paul entered into Corinth and began doing ministry in Corinth. And so the last two weeks, we spent uh, just kind of touching on, just doing a flyover of the letters that he wrote to that church. Because we want you not just to learn the Bible when you come here on a Sunday morning, we want to help equip you to be able to read and study and understand the Bible much better when you're reading it on your own or when you're reading it with each other. And so we wanted to help kind of root those, anchor those letters in history, right? That, that these letters uh, that, that we read in the New Testament, Romans and, and Timothy and, and, and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, all, the, all these letters are written to actual people in actual places who are dealing with real issues. These, these aren't like these detached kind of philosophical, theological works. These are written to real people. And so the reason, as we're going through Acts, we're taking these little one-week detours and touching on an, another letter is because we just want to help ground those letters in the reality of, of history and what's happening in these places. So we're back to Acts, we're back to the narrative, and we're going to be walking through uh, several events that happen uh, in the second half of chapter 18 and the first half of chapter 19. And you may be wondering, why are we looking at multiple passages? Well, I'm going to argue that we're going to do that this morning because Luke groups these events together. So as we read Scripture, we want to do so slowly and carefully. And we want to let the author guide us Right? These, are, these men are sitting down and writing these things out. They're writing to an audience and they're wanting us to notice certain things. Not just writing out bullet points of historical facts, they're trying to, to highlight certain things to us. And so when we're reading this slowly and carefully, we want to look for those clues of how the author is trying to, to, to make some things prominent and some things kind of background information. And so what we see here in chapter 18, in 18 verse 1, we see, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So he's kind of, it's a new episode. We were in Athens, and then after he was in Athens, we have a break point, new episode. Now Paul goes to Corinth. And then we see in verse 18 of chapter 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers. And so, after he's in Corinth for a while, new episode. And then we don't see that phrase again until halfway through chapter 19, in verse 21. Oh man, that is the most beautiful sound. The sound of pages turning on a Sunday morning is almost more beautiful than the music that we play with the instruments. Verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia. Which events? The events that we're about to read this morning that Paul groups together into one episode. You see that? It's not, 
not very complicated. Paul, or Luke, rather, who's writing the book of Acts, is, is wanting to kind of coach us and say, like, okay, this is an episode. This is all kind of one episode, and now it's the next episode, and now this episode. And so this episode is one of those episodes that when you're watching a TV show, there's all sorts of little mini-narratives that are going on, and they all kind of connect together. So that's what's happening in this event. That's what Paul is, is, is wanting us to notice something, some threads that are connecting these events together because he groups them together into one episode. He's coaching us to look for things that are common in these events. And so I want to receive Luke's coaching and, and, and spend a little bit of time trying to figure out what he might want us to see in this. And there's a couple threads that are consistent throughout this. Originally, one of them is this idea of authority within the church, and I thought that would be helpful, but the more time I spent in these passages, the more I realized there is another thread that is woven throughout all of these events that is way more applicable to every single one of us in the room. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We are going to look at this common thread throughout all these events of the importance of an experiential knowledge of Jesus and why that matters. Before we do that, I'm going to pray for us. Spirit, we know, we trust that though men just like us sat down and picked up a pen and wrote these words with intention and purpose that you guided this process in, in a mysterious and supernatural way. So help us to understand that while yes, this is Luke wanting us to understand certain things, ultimately it is you that is speaking to us, it is guiding his hand and his thoughts so that we would see what is important in these things. Jesus, help us to see you in every word of every page. We would grow in our affections for you, our trust in you, our sheer delight in you and that you would give us discernment to understand the spiritual truths that you are communicating to us. Amen. All right. So in Paul, in, in uh, chapter 18, rather, in verse 18, we see 18 through 23, we have after this. So we have the new episode begins, and it begins with Paul leaving Corinth with his new friends, Priscilla and Aquila, and he begins to, he, he sets sail for Asia Minor. Okay, so he, he drops Priscilla and Aquila off in Ephesus. So we're going to, Paul's going to make his way back around there, and, uh, and anyone have a guess uh, in a couple Sundays what letter we're going to talk about? Good job. You guys are awesome. That's right. Ephesians, which are, Ephesians are people who live in Ephesus who Paul writes a letter to, but we haven't gotten there yet. So he drops them off in Ephesus, and he goes on, and over the next couple of verses, it talks about how he travels on through Antioch and Caesarea and Galatia and Phrygia, which are all uh, right now modern-day Syria and Turkey, which we often forget is the cradle of the early church. That's where the church literally was born and, and grew and, and flourished initially, Syria and Turkey. Not typically things that we, areas that we think of as, 
as the hub of world Christianity, but that's where it was. And so that's what he's doing. He's traveling around those areas. Meanwhile, back in Ephesus, a man named Apollos hits the scene. He makes his first appearance. So we're going to pick up in verse 24. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that's in North Africa, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing, that the scripture, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And the Christ is a Greek word for Messiah, so that the Messiah was Jesus, or that the anointed one is what that literally means, is Jesus. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is, uh, it is a title of honor. So we have this guy, Apollos, who it says he is, I mean, and, then, and, and Luke gives him high praise, right? He is eloquent. He is competent in the scriptures. He is fervent in spirit. He, is, he, he taught accurately. He speaks boldly. And he is in need of discipleship. Why? A dynamic, eloquent, passionate, an accurate preacher of the scripture needs correction? Why? Well, I would argue two main reasons. Reason number one, because he is not Jesus. Anyone who is not God incarnate needs coaching and correction from all directions. Everyone. We should be eager for it, rather than, rather than feeling like, wait a minute, what, me? Certainly you don't mean me. No, no, our, our posture should be, yeah, I do. I look for it everywhere. I can't wait to learn from people. I learn from my kids. I learn from other pastors. I learn from you. I want to grow more and more in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, and so I am eager to learn, to be corrected, to receive pushback, to make sure that what I believe is actually scriptural and not cultural or opinion or, or just flat error. Why would we not want to know the way of the kingdom even more accurately? When we think we don't need that or when we think that we can't find anyone who's qualified enough to do that for us, the reality is we do not have an accessibility problem, we have a humility problem. Luke gives no indication whatsoever that Apollos responded when Priscilla comes alongside and says, hey, come on, let's, can we talk to you for a minute, buddy? Luke does not record him saying, what, who do you think you are, Priscilla? Did you not hear how eloquent and accurately I just preached the scriptures? No, Luke, Luke gives the impression that, that Apollos received it was blessed by it and encouraged by it, and then that Jesus' ministry grew through him as a result of it. 
So Luke gives the impression that Apollos humbly receives this, and as a result, his ministry fruit flourishes. So recap A, not Jesus. And everyone who is not Jesus regularly requires correction if we have any intention whatsoever in growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And reason number two is because the way of Jesus is more than being competent in the scriptures, having passion, or speaking with confidence and eloquence. It is immeasurably more than that. Luke does point out he knew only John's baptism. That he spoke eloquently concerning the things about Jesus. I don't think those words were chosen incidentally. I think he was intentional in those things. He knew only John's baptism. What was missing was an experiential knowledge of Jesus himself, even though he was good at teaching the things concerning Jesus, there was an experiential knowledge of Jesus that was lacking. He needed Priscilla and her husband Aquila to come alongside him. And, and I love that Luke points out they, they brought him aside. This was not a public rebuke. There was no shame involved in this. There was a, the, the sense you get is, Paulus, you are, you are awesome, buddy. God is doing an incredible work through you. There, there, let, let's just let's fine-tune a few things here. Let me teach you a little bit more of the way of Jesus. He needed to understand the way of God more accurately. The path of God literally is what that word means. The path of God more accurately. So yes, knowing the scriptures well and being able to teach them accurately and, and, and passionately and eloquently is, is absolutely vitally important. But if we don't understand ultimately that the goal of that, the point of that, is to actually abide in or to dwell in Jesus, to follow his direction and his leading to the ways of Jesus, and to acknowledge that, that, that when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about the doctrine of Jesus who we are speaking of is the currently very alive, actual person of Jesus. And if we forget that that is the actual goal of studying and knowing and teaching the Scriptures, then we can find ourselves accidentally misleading ourselves and others to follow a path that utilizes the Bible very reasonably while ignoring Jesus. A way that, as Solomon tells us, seems right to man. It seems very reasonable. But in the end, it leads to death. Jesus himself warns us about this. We've, and this verse has come up fairly regularly over the last couple months. But just to remind ourselves again of what Jesus says that John records in John chapter 5, he warns the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them... You have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus himself says, you can know this perfectly 
and die eternally because you miss the fact that this is pointing to me. The scriptures do not save. Jesus saves. The scriptures are the glorious gift from God to point us to the Jesus that we are meant to dwell in, abide in, trust in. To live in His way. All the eloquence, all the boldness, all the passion, all the biblical biblical accuracy in the world cannot make up for a lack of actually knowing Jesus. That's why this is so important. So then we move on to the next event, the beginning of 19. Paul makes his way now back to Ephesus and this time he stays and he ends up actually staying there for for two years. Sometimes our Father allows you to plant yourself in one place for a really long time and sometimes it is only for a season. It feels painfully relevant right now. So Paul makes his way back to Ephesus and when he first arrives, he has this significant interaction. So let's read it together. Starting in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country. So Paul and, and uh, Apollos basically trade places here. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on to them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So similar to Apollos, we have a group of disciples who lacked an experiential knowledge of Jesus. To be more, a little more precise, uh, it's, a, it's an experiential knowledge of the Trinity. Okay? It's God, the wholeness of God. Because what it says here is, well, you're lacking the Holy Spirit. So that can get a little bit confusing. Okay? The Trinity is a paradoxical mystery. Okay, so whenever we try to explain it, we usually make it even more confusing and less helpful. It's one of those aspects of Scripture that is, that is truly beyond us. It is nothing like an egg. It is nothing like an apple or water or a clover or a dad who is also a husband and an employee. It is nothing like any of those. Every single one of those illustrations we use is actually an illustration of a historical heresy. Whoops! So we don't want to use illustrations regarding the Trinity because every single one of them is false because there is nothing in all of creation that is just like the Trinity. Nothing. It is a super-rational idea. Okay? It is not irrational. It is super-rational. Irrational is nonsense. Okay? A round square is irrational. If it's round, it ceases to be a square. That is nonsense, okay? So when you talk about a round square, that's irrational. This is super rational. 
It is beyond human reason to currently comprehend. A quantum particle that can exist in two places at once is super rational. If we gathered all of the top quantum physicists in the world on this stage and asked them, what does it mean that a quantum particle can exist in two places at once? The unanimous conclusion that they will give us is, I don't know. It's the weirdest thing ever. But our best minds are working on it. They don't know. They can observe it, sort of, but they don't know why, they don't know how, they don't know what it means that this happens. It is, it is totally paradoxical. It is super rational. It is beyond current human comprehension. A trinity is the most gloriously super rational reality in all of creation. Outside of creation. It's beyond creation. It's responsible for creation. Are we confused yet? Yeah, yes. Yeah, don't, don't lose that. That's actually a good thing to know that God is way bigger than you and I can comprehend. The Trinity is delightfully, awe-inspiring, beautifully, supra-rational. It is a mystery. And so for our purposes, we use the shorthand of Jesus. And I think that's okay because Scripture tells us that the, the reason the Father sent Jesus, the reason the incarnation or God becoming man happened was both to save and redeem humankind, but also to give us an image of the character of God, that he is the exact representation of his nature so we could actually see, oh, that's what God is like. So when the Father says, when you look at Jesus, you gain a better understanding of who the Trinity is, I think that gives us permission to say, what we're talking about here shorthand is Jesus. And we need the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one by whom we have communion with the Father and the Son. It's His presence that dwells within us and connects us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, which allows us to dwell in Jesus. So when Paul comes to them and says, hey, you guys are doing a great job of following a pastor who was teaching about Jesus, but you need to follow Jesus. That's the point that John was trying to make. You need to follow the one that is to come. You need to experience Jesus. And they needed the Spirit to realign them with Jesus himself, not just teachings about him. So two years then, Paul continues to teach and demonstrate the kingdom of God through much opposition. And news spreads throughout all of West Asia. Then stuff gets awesome. In chapter 19, starting verse 11, it gets wild. So God is doing a wild work through Paul. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, which is also not an accidental way of phrasing that. Luke is wanting us to know God is doing miracles. Yes, he's using Paul, but Paul's not doing miracles. God is doing miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. What on earth 
This is wild. There is nothing else that we've seen in Scripture that's quite like what God is doing in Ephesus in this moment. It is bonkers. Handkerchiefs. People are waving handkerchiefs at demon-possessed people and the demons are running and hiding. It's weird. It's super weird. And then what happens in this is that a group of guys see what Paul is doing, acknowledge that there is true power in the name of Jesus, and then they want to try to wield that authority for their own. They are arguably trying to do something kind. Freeing someone from demon possession is an act of compassion. However, they misunderstand the source of authority that they see in Paul. And doing something with assumed or stolen authority always ends badly. So let's pick up this awesome one in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. (laughs) You're not even pretending to be a part of this thing at this point. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? (laughs) Right? (laughs) And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. It doesn't really matter what else happened. If you end up naked at the end of the fight, you lost the fight. (laughs) These guys get humiliated, humiliated publicly. They have to run out of the house on full, their loss, their defeat, and full glorious display. And then, quite reasonably, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Because how fast is that story going to spread? Both to the Jews and the Greeks, and equally reasonable, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Extolled is not a word we often use. It means enthusiastically praised. The name of Jesus was enthusiastically praised. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Come on, this one's just fun, right? They're humiliated. And what do they say to them? Who are you? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (sighs) That was awesome. (laughs) Obviously, we know and are terrified of Jesus, and we are well aware of this Paul guy, but who do you think you are? 
Just coming in and dropping the name of Jesus like it's an incantation. Like it's a magic trick that just you say this name and we have to obey. We don't even know who you are. We know you're not part of them. Authority in the kingdom of God is not about having right answers, knowing what to say, or even believing certain facts, no matter how biblical. It's about an experiential knowledge of Jesus. Do you know him, church? Do you belong to him? Do you dwell, live, abide with him and in him? Even the demons know this is how it works. They say, you may be using their words, but we know that you aren't with them. Jesus warns us of this very reality in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus himself says, On that day to me, at the moment of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. No matter how accurately and eloquently you or I teach the scriptures, no matter how well we follow another pastor's teaching, and even if we are able to accomplish extraordinary miracles, if Jesus' response is, I'm sorry, do I know you? then as Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, all the rest is worthless garbage. What matters is an experiential knowledge of knowing Jesus. The living, real Jesus who through his spirit is interacting with us, inviting us to follow him not just to learn facts about him, but to know him. If I have a fact sheet that I distribute to all of you about my wife Stacy, her place of birth, her education, various preferences, a description of her various features, you could learn some facts about her. But that doesn't mean you know her. And no list can capture the way her nose wrinkles when she laughs in a certain way. The thing that she does with her feet when she's laying in bed, and she'd really rather talk about our day than go to sleep. The way she laughs when something really catches her off guard. The face that she makes when she's feeling a little overwhelmed by how much she loves our kids. How sometimes she seems mad, but really she's sad or hurt or scared. The face that she makes when it's time to stop making jokes immediately. perfect shape of her thumb. 
her silly side that only a very elite few get to see. And the face that she is making right now, <laughs> that means that she is simultaneously and in perfectly equal parts embarrassed and loving every second of this illustration. <laughs> None of that shows up in a list in a document of truth statements about my bride. And even having just described those things to you, you still don't know what they look like and wouldn't recognize them if you saw them. That only comes from living with her day after day after day, year after year after year. And then you truly know someone. How foolish to think that Jesus is different. That the God of the universe, unlike a normal human relationship, is so small that just by knowing a few facts about him, we can be experts and feel like we know all there is to know. It's absurd. To think that knowing and agreeing with a handful of doctrinal statements about him, though true, is the same as having an experiential knowledge of our Jesus. It comes only from living with him day in and day out. And what we see in these extraordinary events is that when the followers of Jesus in the early church reoriented their lives and their ministry around this experiential knowledge of Jesus, following him and his way, obeying what he has commanded and responding when his spirit is guiding and directing, knowing him, following him, abiding or dwelling in him, with him, through the spirit, doing things in the way that he did things and humbly receiving correction from one another. What we see happening in this early church is that, and, and what we can see happening in this church is that we would greatly help those who through grace believe in this Jesus. That we would see the Spirit's miraculous power at work in us and all around us that more and more people would hear the name of Jesus, the glorious name of Jesus, and know Him personally and learn what it means to live with Him in His kingdom. And that the Word of God would continue to increase and prevail mightily. I love that phrase. Church, that is my hope, my prayer my desire, my dream for my life, for my family, for this church and to the ends of the earth that we may know Christ and the power of his resurrection to the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the relentless joy of his people. Heavenly Father, please Please stir in us a desire to see this. Free us 
from the ways that we have become complacent and settled or, or even arrogant, I'd stir in us a desire to know you more fully. To know the Jesus that, that invaded his own creation. That John says nothing exists that wasn't made by him, and yet he invades that creation in order to make you, the triune God, known to us. And not just known, to give us access to you once again through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Please, Father, move in this family in such an extraordinary way. Spirit, awaken our souls to the reality of who this Jesus is and what he has done and who we truly get to be in him right now. Not just on the other side of eternity, but right now in such a way that a work begins in this church that spills out into this community in such a transformative way that the word of God would continue to increase and prevail mightily and it would transform this place. We know that you can do that. We know you choose to do it through ordinary and broken people like me and like my brothers and sisters in this room. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more. It's in your precious name that we pray and for the sake of your name that we live. Amen.